You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. So welcome, listeners. Today we have with us Deb Prince. She's a program manager at Underwriters Laboratory and the chairman of UL4600. And now UL4600, for you astute listeners, is something that Fred has mentioned at least a half a dozen times. Uh, Underwriters Laboratory, we've all seen those little stickers and tags on your lamps and everything else. Uh, And so welcome, Deb. Hopefully you can tell us a little bit more about um, about your work and, and how this applies to making cars safer. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. And um, I, I'm interested in this. I, I was looking back kind of at the history of UL, you know, and when, and how they started. And you know, it looked, I think they were founded in the 19th century, the late 1800s. Um, and it was primarily due to the growth and, you know, people having electricity in their homes and businesses and the need for, fire prevention um they you know they certified fire extinguishers in addition to the wiring and 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 that type of thing and then as consumer technology has evolved um during the 20th century you know they're on everything you know you see ul on everything from microwaves to toasters to anything that's plugged in in your house and you know i i've seen they also now have electric vehicle standards and so it's it's almost uh a, uh, just a matter of time before UL is involved in some of the these uh, really heavy technical electric uh, systems that we're always dealing with uh, on in, in cars. Um, so you know we see a lot of standards from NHTSA. They have you know a few dozen safety regulations they enforce, and also you might hear us talk about SAE Society of Automotive Engineers standards um, frequently, and you know. There are hundreds of those. And and when you look at those, almost all of them are focused generally on a specific mechanical or electrical function of the vehicle, how thick a brake hose is, you know, how um, tires perform under temperature, things like that. But, um, you know, when you UL4600 is kind of a different animal because instead of, you know, really focusing on a part or a piece, it's more focused on a process and it's also not specifically directed at cars, although it's certainly applicable. It's directed at, I would say, any form of autonomous vehicle and perhaps other forms of autonomy. So tell me what I got wrong there, Deb. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you, you did a great job, Michael. Um, I'd like to just kind of step back and right. absolutely um Underwriters Laboratories did form in the 1800s as a result of of electricity and fires and things like that. Um, The first UL standard was was actually published in 1903, and it dealt with tin clad fire doors. And let me tell you, that standard is still in use today. It has been updated. I can't even remember what edition we're on, but it has been updated along the way. Um, initially, the risks were fire, fire and um, electrical hazards. It's been expanded to, again, it's been expanded to security and, and sustainability and, and all of that. I also wanted to share, you talked about the UL label that you see on products everywhere. 
Um, that is actually done through UL Solutions. We actually are three separate organizations. So UL Solutions does the conformity, the labels that you see everywhere. We have UL's um, Research Institute that does uh, battery fire testing, safety research on that. We have, we have dealt with, um, they've called that group in when there was fires in the Boeing aircraft and they did um, root cause. They've dealt with a lot of issues with cell phone fires on planes and, and worked with the companies on things like that, as well as um, fire safety. You see in the news, the campaign about shutting your door, uh, shut the door before you snooze and how fire propagations change. They're the ones that um, did that research and, and have really implemented that campaign. And then I work for UL Standards and Engagement. So we are the ones that take safety science and put it into action. So a standard is that action. It is what something can be measured against. So um, like you said, a lot of times they're product standards. Many of them are product standards. However, as high-tech industries change, we need to look more at some systems and some system approaches, whether that is um, cybersecurity or autonomy. So they are unique in that aspect, absolutely, then versus um, a safety standard for a washer. Okay, great. So in terms of self-driving cars, are they ready now? <laughs> no, I, yeah, like Fred, it's talked in the past about about the fire safety issues with electric vehicles and and battery things like that. Is that part? I guess taking a step back, what is what is forty six hundred encompass? And I know I should know this, and I'm sure Fred is disappointed at me for not having it memorized. <laughs> so it, it is truly a standard safety for the autonomy, the autonomy portion of the vehicle. So there are separate standards for. Again, electric vehicle batteries, charging stations, all of that. This is truly the autonomy, the software portion of the, of the vehicle. So, and the intention of this is when there is not a human in the loop. So it is truly the, um, everything you've considered within that autonomy realm. So this is very cutting edge. Like this is yeah. all the companies are, they don't have an, an answer. They don't have a... They have test products in the market. Right. And, 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 and the fact that it's cutting edge makes it challenging to develop a standard yeah. because you don't want to innovate. Um, you don't want to limit innovation, but you also want to make sure that safety is addressed. And we feel like the approach of UL4600 balances that. It really does um, allow companies for innovation, but it, prompts them as a safety case for everything they need to consider to claim that something is safe enough. And, and it's, you know, it's not just, uh, we're not just, I try to keep in mind, you know, we're not just talking about vehicles here. We're talking about if it's, you know, a flying car would not be covered by UL 4600, but an autonomous flying car would. Is that correct? It could. could? It, right. Could um, we are actually working on another standard to deal with um, uncrewed 
aerial vehicles, right? And the autonomy of that, because there are some more regulatory requirements and some other things like that. But absolutely, the foundations of autonomy there, you could use that. Um, like you, like you said, Michael, in the beginning, a robot can use this. It doesn't need to be um, just a vehicle. Right now, when we started the um, first draft of that, we figured the biggest hazard would be the autonomy from a vehicle. So that is how we decided as a committee to limit it to vehicles for our examples and, and, and you know, pitfalls that are in there, those, those kind of cases, because a vehicle has so much interaction with the vulnerable population. And so we started with the vehicle. And um, as we update the standard, we look at expanding it. And our take now is that it will cover anything that's meant on a road. Full disclosure here, um, we actually had a small part of developing UL 4600. Mm-hmm. And uh, a sad story, I'm the sort of person who used to go to the library and read encyclopedias just for fun. So <laughs> I, I, I claim that I have read the entirety of UL 4600, which is probably one of three people who have actually done that. Deb is one of those, and uh, um, Phil Coopin's probably the other. So maybe I'm in the third. I may, there could be a fourth somewhere. <laughs> but Deb, um, I think it's important for the discussion to understand why you decided to use a use case or a, a safety case approach to UL 4600 rather than just a monolithic group of statements that says this is what you have to do? Um, that's a really good question, Fred. And um, again, full disclosure, Fred's also part of my committee. So Fred has been in on uh, some of the discussions. And the reason being, the main reason is that it is evolving. This industry is evolving so quickly and we need um, a standard and a standard approach out there. It's hard to define what safety is when there's so many <clears throat> different technologies and different approaches. And I'm not sure if if the committee worked for five years, if we went down the approach that you asked, if we would still have a standard because everyone is looking at it differently. Their, their operational design domain areas are differently. What, what they um, need are, is different. So actually providing this structured argument, which Fred, that standard is a beast. It's 300 pages plus, right? It is, it is very robust. But in that, we were also able to put known pitfalls in here. So when you were looking at software, why not learn from the mistakes from another software um, incident or learning? I know that um, when we first started going around and talking to the groups about different groups about the standard, there was a situation in the test data that came up. Phil Koopman liked to say that um, there was a, some test data that was, I don't know, 90 some odd percent accurate. However, 100% missed yellow. And the DOT uh, workers in Pennsylvania wore yellow. So 
you really needed a way to evaluate things. And we laugh now that we bet there is not a single piece of training test data out there that doesn't have the color yellow uh, marked and identified. So um, kind of a long-winded answer, Fred, but the reason we did that is because we felt like that is really the only way to wrap around autonomy and provide transparency and consistency in how you would evaluate safety. Thanks. Thanks for that. And, and I want the listeners to know that one of the attractions of UL4600 plays to one of the defects of autonomous vehicles that we have uh, articulated. Uh, autonomous vehicles don't have a soul. They don't have a conscience. They don't have an ethical bias. And so what UL4600, uh, sorry, my, that's my dogs. Um, so what UL4600 requires is that the entity developing the autonomous vehicle sit down and explain in human terms to human beings why these different aspects of the approach to autonomy are correct and safe and and are can be understood by other human beings who are in a position to address the engineering aspects of these considerations. Um, it's it's really unique and wonderful that way. Every other stand that I know of simply looks at some technical item and says, well, this is the way to do it. Whereas UL4600, in essence, takes the, the technology out of the equation completely and says, okay, human beings on your side, this is what the implementation you've done looks like. Tell us, the independent third parties, why this is, a number one, adequate, why number two is appropriate, and why number three, that it's safe. Um, I think it's a, it's a wonderful construct, and I think that that's really needed in the industry, and I think it goes a long way towards addressing a lot of the shortfalls we've seen in the autonomous vehicle. So how do you, how do you think it's going to be used? I know there's a difference between external use and internal use of the UL4600, meaning external use would be a third party who is sitting in and looking at what's going on, an auditor, if you will, <clears throat> versus internal use, which is somebody who is paid by the company to look at conformance to the UL4600 and address that. What is it, What is that interaction like? What do you expect that to be? You know, that's a really good question. I think um, with any new standard and new area, um, acceptance takes a while. I think that we know the companies that are sitting on these, this committee and paying attention, they're, they're looking at this internally, whether they're, I think it's, it's made a difference internally. I believe even um, some public facing safety cases that Uber had a public safety case and Aurora Innovations has a public um, facing safety case that they did internally, but they are it's on Aurora's Innovations website, right? And it does not say that they've used 4600, but the elements are all there. They have a, a safety case, they have their claims, they have, like you said, Fred, in plain English, why they believe that um, they can deploy a safe autonomous vehicle. Um, well, they'll cause no harm, how they'll, how they'll deal with um, validations, how they'll do all that. So 
I believe within time, it, it's, it's going to continue to be um, expanded the use. I have a lot of interest from outside of the U.S. that is looking at the standard. I can share with you that um, China's National Committee is actually looking at adopting it. Their, their committee is going through the document right now. Um, I've spoken um, with the Apex Automotive uh, Group, which is Asian, Asian Pacific Economic, I don't know the last thing, last and, and spoke with them on UL 4600, um, interest in Singapore, interest in Thailand. So I think that it has... It's got it's got legs, right? But having a a traditional third party certification label on autonomous system, I, you know, you're not going to see a UL label on a car. It's just it's just that's just not how that's going to be. That's not even how it's set up because it's more of a, a paper audit kind of thing. So I think you're going to see more public facing safety cases for these. But that's just my crystal ball, and it could be completely wrong. Right. And I, that sounds right to me because, you know, my understanding of UL 4600, although it's not very great compared to Fred's, you know, suggests to me that this, this, the safety case process and the evaluation is continuous and ongoing. So it doesn't really lend itself to sticking a label on something and saying this is complete or this is done because there's always the potential for an unknown risk or something else to arise that needs to be addressed within the safety case. And the beauty of that you bring this up is the beauty of our standards development process and this, the way the standard has been um, thought out is when you find this information, you can propose that back into the standard. So it's, you know, it's a continuous learning exercise and um, we have already published, you know, we, we started the activity in 2019, we published in 2020, we published another edition in 2022, and we will publish the third edition in 2023. So that tells you with high-tech kind of new evolving areas, you do want to have the ability to um, revise your document at a frequency and, and address things as more people are using it. And that's also something that um, we don't see out of NHTSA, quite frankly. I mean, it would be very, very difficult for them with all of the regulations they're required to follow and rulemakings and the time that goes into that. It, you know, it's almost impossible for an agency like that to keep up with this the the evolving technology and and the new risks that we find out as they come in because rulemaking doesn't lend itself to being uh, updated as technology changes on a weekly daily monthly basis we're talking about years before government standards can really have an impact as far as setting a minimum performance standard for vehicles and in this area you know it's 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 going to require some you know a new approach i think if the government's really going to have an impact in the next 20 years on autonomous vehicles and i think 
you know, Fred and I are happy that the UL 4600 and some other standards are going to be there to guide manufacturers and other participants in the industry as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, that is the difference with regulations, right? And and that's why most of these agencies prefer to point to um, a voluntary standard. And I think I've been even directed to do that whenever the case is possible, because, again, that is much easier uh, for change as needed. And and I'd like to point out that um, the different agencies within DOT have sat on our committee. They either are stakeholders or they have been voting members. So they are involved and follow along. So how how does this work? If I'm, I I go out and I create some autonomous driving software uh, and I want this UL 4600, is it that I'm just doing a self-assessment comparing against this um, or am I submitting it to you and your team and they're reviewing it and saying, hey, you meet all these standards? Because I, I think you pointed out that um, you know, there's not going to be a UL sticker on a car or on or maybe the boot up screen. There won't be, you know, hey, UL 4600. So how does it how does it work? Is this strictly voluntary? I mean, I imagine, but. Okay, so I'll answer a couple different things out of that question. So the standards themselves are voluntary safety standards. UL standards are voluntary safety standards. Um, the standard allows for independent, um, independent self-assessments, right? And, and the meaning of that is shouldn't be within, you know, if you're in the engineering department, the assessment should not be done for, by, you know, your director of engineering within that same way, right? It should be a, a different group that was um, charged with safety evaluation or some, some kind of independence within there. Um, how... The other thing, like how you would submit something, how it would be certified, that is all really conformity assessment, and that is not within my UL standards develops an engagement. We develop standards. How something is um, certified or conformity to is really outside of my wheelhouse. Okay. Are there any limits on how or when this could be used by manufacturers? Geographic, political... Um, you know, is it is it a worldwide standard that's been you talked about? Is it a worldwide standard that's been generally accepted as a worldwide standard, or is it still evolving? That's a good question. So the standard can be used worldwide. There are no um, limitations. Uh, in addition, our committee which is the voting membership, as well as our, which is around 30-ish people, are from around the world. There are a variety of uh, participants. And then we have an additional 200 plus stakeholders. And those are also from around the world. Uh, Even when we set up task groups, the task group members are from a variety of countries. So it is intended to be used um, in internationally. It 
works well with the international existing international standards such as ISO 26262 or 21448. Those can be used as part of your safety case argument up into UL 4600. So again, it is um, a worldwide application. I think the bigger issue is these aren't ready for the road yet, right? So the usage and uptake on usage just really depends on how much more um, available the, these kind of cars are, are going to be, or trucking, right? For a while, um, the a lot more autonomy and focus has been on long-haul trucking and, and doing that. So that is why... Um, the proposed change into will be in addition three. We'll have some more examples and, and on that for um, heavy duty trucking. So I think it's kind of a wait and wait and see on how the industry goes. But as the industry progresses, there's a standard there so that it can be evaluated for safety. And Anthony, in response to your flying cars. Uh, that was my I know you I know you want one. You live in New York. I know you want one. But you know, if forty six hundred, if UL forty six hundred had been made for flying cars, it would include a provision, for example, that would say, show how takeoff of the flying cars is safe for the surrounding pedestrians and service personnel. Now, that would be a specific item for the, and, and, and then the company would have to come back and say, well, this is how we do it. We put up stanchions, we do this kind of thing. And people would say, yeah, that's good enough or that's not good enough. But that's, that's a, an example of the limitation that would be applied to the flying cars. But there's still a lot of applicability about how the software is designed, um, how uh-uh. things interact how the management system acts with safety. So, you know, that, that, that's a long explanation, but I thought it might help Deb answer this question, which is what's the, <laughs> been the hardest part of this? Working with Fred? Yeah, Fred's great. Fred's great. He, he gives a voice. Let me, let me just give a shout out for Fred. He gives a voice from the consumer safety that is needed in the group, right? So, you you need that voice. It makes everyone focus on what's ultimately important is the the safeties of the individuals. Oh, thank you, Deb. I'm just a simple country boy trying to eke out a living in the big city, so <laughs> that matters to me. Uh, he doesn't distract conversations with the days of his youth, hot wiring cars or anything, or. <laughs> <laughs> Nope, he hasn't told that, but now I've got some ammo on him. <laughs> well, you should listen to prior episodes. We learned all sorts of interesting things about Mr. Perkins. Oh, I'm going to have to go back further. So so you, you mentioned that this isn't ready yet. So have you had a chance to go in any of these you know, automated vehicles? Like, have you tried a Cruise or a Waymo? Or you're just like, no, I know this stuff isn't ready. <laughs> or is that an unfair political question to ask you? Um, I have not, but it's not because I wouldn't want to. I just, um, I, I live in the Raleigh Durham area of North Carolina, and that's not really a, um area where they're being tested. Oh, fair and enough. Or if they are, they're hiding it from me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and us. <laughs> 
Okay, so what? Uh, so are are the existing companies that are the Waymos and uh, are they actively part of this process? Are they sitting on this board or committee? Um, again, Waymo. not on my my committee, right? Um, I, I can't remember who all's on the stakeholder list, but active members are for sure. Um, like I said, Aurora Innovation, they do a lot of the software that is out there. They have a lot of um, agreements with other other uh, groups on that. I thought I had, oh yeah, I do have. So I have, um, you know, players like Intel sitting at the table. I have... Um, and Intel for listeners, they, they're behind the, the Mobii, is that the system? They're Mobileye. Mobileye, yeah, the yeah, vision system that they're using, which is I think a combination of cameras and LiDAR. Yeah, and so our committees really are, they're balanced. They're a balanced group of individuals. So we call them producers. Those are going to be our software people that do um, the autonomy. We have some uh, test bodies we have within the supply chain. So that is is going to be strictly LIDAR um, and like Bosch and some other individuals like that. Then we have general interests, which is where our academia. So we have quite a few people from academia on our committee. We have, um, like I said before, previously, some representatives from uh, different agencies within the Department of Transportation. We have um, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission sitting at the table. We have some um, commercial users. We have um, some international delegates from Korea, China, and Singapore sitting on the table. And then we actually have some state regulators like Pennsylvania Department of Transportation sitting at the table. And then we have, I want to share the countries that are um, involved. So we have Korea, Australia, Canada, China, Okay, I don't have all the countries I have within Europe. There's quite a few in Europe, sure. India, Japan, UAE, the UK, and US. So it really is an international mix of, um, of voices to, the, to this document. Okay. What's the state of automated vehicles around the world? Is it everybody's pretty much at the same experiment, geofenced way? Or is there anybody out there being like, no, let's go for it? it's about the same i think when it comes to trucking from what i've heard and and i'm not someone that you should probably quote on this i know when it comes to autonomous trucking um there are some countries that are looking at a 2025 launch date on autonomous trucking i know uh, when i was in japan recently that was their um, goal. So I think some countries are looking at, again, trucking sooner than maybe deployment of vehicles. I think some of the um, countries are looking at the opportunity that an autonomous vehicle can 
provide within their congested um, land mass that it versus individuals having a car that the autonomous ride sharing combination can provide within efficiencies and space and um, kind of a goal to zero emissions kind of thing if you combine that with an electric vehicle. So I I think that there are are pockets around that are looking at that more than others, but no one's like running to the top of my mind there, Anthony, that, oh my gosh, this country's absolutely way ahead of everyone else. I I don't think so. I think you're seeing a bunch of test cases all over that are continuing to occur. Great. And so uh, one thing you mentioned, you said there was they weren't tracking the color yellow and all the Pennsylvania workers are wearing yellow. Are they tracking deer in the system? And the reason I asked is the Washington Post had this amazing article about auto safety and animal strikes. And it said they like analyzed over a million animal strikes. Ninety percent of them were deer. So what are you doing to get rid of deer off of the road? And then is this part of the standard? Can we just get rid of deer? <laughs> um, living in North Carolina, I'd love that. You know, I think. My husband and I have both hit deer. Um, I know that the test data, from everything I've seen, they look at animals, right? They look at, again, it's part of that safety case of what would you encounter on a road? Would it be a deer? Would it be a dog? Could, if you're going in a subdivision, could it be a ball rolls rolls across and then it's a small child that darts right they have to look at all of that kind of um incidents that can occur and how to you know map that and define that in their in their training data and so that's not like a checklist, have you do do do? This is more in their evidence that they're going to provide on why they're safe enough. Right, and I was I was thinking about that in the context of you know another type of vehicle that we might not really consider here too often, but the low speed delivery vehicles that they're designing, and I believe even Neuro is one of the first to receive approval from NHTSA for something like that, where. You're going to be approaching, you know, homes, businesses that have pets and other things, and you need to build a safety case around, you know, how you're going to interact with a dog or a child that approaches the vehicle. Oh, so the the, the dog won't be chasing a mailman anymore. It'll be chasing an automated mailman. <laughs> yes, and if you see my dog go after the robot vacuum in my house, you understand why we need these things. <laughs> Well, I think there's a related problem that we did address in UL4600, and my memory's a little hazy. But with an automated vehicle, you have a requirement, and any vehicle, any motor vehicle, you have a requirement to stop, exchange information, and if necessary, contact uh, police if there's a property damage incident or if there's a collision that involves, you know, another human being or another vehicle, right? You could have... There's a real technical problem, though, which is how does the vehicle know that it has contact with something that requires reporting and additional action versus just ran over a pothole? You know, if you look at the at the vibration spectrum associated with those two events, they might be very similar. So that's, you know, that's a challenge for the designers to come come forward and say, OK, we understand 
the significance of this. We understand that we need to know the difference between an inanimate object of no consequence and another object that does have consequence, and we know what to do in response to those different kinds of actions. Right, and we put a task group together um, that had individuals that were um, first responders, emergency responders, things like that, and and actually had that perspective brought in too. And so we beefed up the areas, like you said, on um, on, on incidents, so that that can't fall through the cracks on your your safety case, right? And that's an example of, you know, use and thought and what have we missed the first time around and and why it's important to continually um, update the standard as we learn more and and as we consider scenarios that maybe we haven't considered. How do you uh, get these test cases and can the public submit them? Because I've got a bunch where I'm convinced there's no way automated driving can handle these situations. Well, no. So the test cases are, um, well, anyone can submit, hey, have you, does the standard address this? Or, or I have a, a proposed change to the standard. And that can be submitted um, through UL's website. We have an online tool. And, um, but, the scenarios are usually talked about through the committee, these, these case scenarios. And we talk about if they seem like they can happen frequently enough, they're either put in and as an example that you should or must address, or they're a known pitfall that you have to um, avoid. And, and so that is really the area that we we've really been modifying the most. There's been some cases. The standard in itself is unique too, in the fact that it has um, mandatory, required, highly recommended, and recommended. And the difference between I know your question is going to be what's the difference between mandatory and required. So. Mandatory is absolutely no choice. You have to address this issue in your safety case. Recommend or required means you have to address it unless your system doesn't do it. So if your system, say you have an autonomy system that doesn't use AI, you would have to address why it doesn't apply to you and how you address it would be saying you do not you know, do, do not use AI here. And then again, the highly recommended, that's where you're going to find a whole lot of these examples and, and things like that, and then recommend it. And so some of this, as we've been um, looking at and using the standard, we're like, you know what, this needs to move up a level, right? These requirements, you know what, we think it's a bigger hazard, the committee thinks it's a bigger hazard than we initially thought and, and it has moved up and a few have moved down and again this is a, a learning process so not only just adding more content but thinking about the risk and and how much of a risk each of those are and how they move up on the mandatory required highly recommended or recommended scale and that itself is very unique too 
because I, well, I can't. I, I, I got to applaud you that that requires a lot of tact and diplomacy, because a lot of those discussions can get very heated. They can. They can. Well, Thank I'm gonna. You. <laughs> I'm going to submit my test case scenario. I had to drive my son to JFK last week, and there's a section of roadway where two roads merge and they eliminate any lane markers for a good quarter mile. All of a sudden, I felt I was in Manila and it was just a free for all. There was a good quarter mile stretch where it was I was on a three way lane highway. I'm pretty sure the one merging next to me was another three lane. And we we're all just kind of like, I don't know where you're going. I don't know if this is two lanes now, if this is three, do we go up to six? And we all just kind of worked it out. I, I don't imagine there's any car right now. I mean, I wouldn't trust an automated vehicle to work it out. I didn't trust the guy in the truck next to me to work it out because he was pretty much trying to get on top of my car. Did you drive through Ethiopia on your way to JFK? <laughs> well, a section of Queens is, you know, it, it literally like I remember leaving the airport in Manila a long time ago and the highway went from like four lanes to two lanes to six lanes to one lane to a dirt track briefly. Maybe it was just that cab driver. He could have just been messing with me. It was a bit of a I was wondering, um, you know, is there... You know, we were talking about autonomy here, but we've also discussed previously, I believe, the application of the safety case process or format to some of the, you know, I guess, lower level technologies, more of the stuff that's on cars now, you know, you know, crash avoidance features like automatic emergency braking, lane keeping, lane departure, uh, blind spot warnings, all that stuff that we're seeing on cars now. You know, could manufacturers be using UL 4600 the process for that, or is there another standard that might apply to those vehicles or something that maybe um, y'all are thinking about in the future? Because there's still, you know, NHTSA still kind of has a loose regulatory structure around those technologies. And we're still seeing areas where, you know, some of the technology like pedestrian automatic emergency braking, for example, isn't working as great at night or at higher speed, high speeds, and in other areas where, you know, we think it'd be really beneficial to safety to protect folks in those circumstances. Is, is there any, um, you know, a, a, I guess I'm asking, is there any, you know, is there a use here for those technologies or is there, you know, another standard that might need to be developed in that area? Um, interesting question. From conversations I've had with other committee members, this could be used on any of those level three kind of assist or three plus kind of thing, right? The, right. The, that automated assist, you can use that same approach, right? It is a, it's a, it's a structured um, way to look at assessing all of your risk and, and all your scenarios and have you, can you argue sufficiently and have the claims that this really works? So I think it can be used that way right now. The scope, you know, if you, if you were applying it directly, the scope says for um, intended for no human interaction, but you know what lane assistant pedestrian stuff, and that is intended for assisting the human, right? They're, they're obviously ultimately still, responsible and in control but you could you could make that leap um so yeah it, it is usable the process is is solid you're 
methodology is solid, are we marketing the standard for that? No. no. Yeah, and I was just wondering, you know, we've seen things like that have arisen in automatic emergency braking, like phantom braking incidents and things that you know, we think if this, if there were, if they had been following a, a, um, well-written standard, those are things they would have considered in the design portion that might possibly have been eliminated, uh, in the manufacturing part. You know, if they were building a safety case for the tip, you know, the un, you know, what happens if, say, a sensor for the AAB, uh, detects an object that may or may not be there. There might be some sort of design or, you know, at least some type of maybe we've talked about sensor fusion or other ways to have a backup knowledge of that potential object in the, in the car's way. You know, there's, there's, there's got to be a way to avoid this phantom braking incidents. And I think that it's because they're causing problems for following drivers and other people. So I think that, you know, if manufacturers were creating safety performance indicators that track things like uh, false braking incidents and things like that, that would be an area where they could be, you know, building the technology so that we don't see those, those incidents in the future. And I, so I do know if you were looking at LIDAR specific, right, within that type of sensor, um, I'm working on a standard right now that is more of a product type standard for the LIDAR itself. Because again, if you're out there in this vehicle and you're dependent on LIDAR and um, it breaks, you, you know, your, your car is not going to function how it needs to. So I'm working on a standard developing, drafting that right now. It's called UL 4700. Um, in addition, I know there are activities within ISO that I've been coordinating with that are looking at performance of those LIDAR type sensors. So I do know there's an international standards activity, and I don't remember the number, um, but that is occurring. Um, and so sensors is going to continue to be uh, a hot topic that needs more and more development as sensors are being used all over the place, whether it's on the vehicle, whether it's on the roadway, um, because you do need that roadway and you need the vehicle communications and all kinds of stuff like that. So I know there are activities um, within my agency as well as, you know, I know SAE has some activities with vehicle to vehicle um, standards and things like that so again as technology is evolving as these are getting more rampant there's a need for safety standards out there absolutely and um the thing that all of us try to do within this space is not duplicate which are really hard to coordinate and not duplicate because that does not help anyone are there organizations that are developing parallel standards that are operating within their own stovepipe or is the whole regulatory community tied together sufficiently well? You know, I mean, I know IEEE is developing a standard, SAE is developing a bunch of standards, ISO is doing what they do. I don't know anything about Asian authorities, but perhaps you do. Um, you know, regulatory is, is, is definitely separate and on their path. Um, we know that 
just because a vehicle is purchased in one jurisdiction doesn't mean it's not, you know, shipped all around the world. These are not, you know, U.S. space only cars or people get transferred and move their car over to another country and things like that. So I think for the community, having consistent standards used worldwide will, will help in that transference um are there other standards that are being developed oh yes there are but the ones that i'm aware of fred like ieee and even the ones that have been um, like i said previously iso that some of those activities and and that we can work together on those they're not conflicting they can be used into UL 4600, UL 4600s really the most comprehensive one that's out there. Um, so they work well together, but we feel like UL 4600 is really the comprehensive, only comprehensive standard in this space. Uh, if you talk about SAE standards and that, um, I, UL has a, a memorandum of understanding with SAE um, concerning UL 4600. And how we can work together and not um, them not conflict with our standard. I sit on their RAD committee on road automated driving committee as a liaison for UL 4600, as well as their trucking committee. And they are on my, um, my committees also. So again, the standards community tries to work together as much as possible. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because Anthony wants to take his self-driving car to Canada, and he's afraid of getting stopped at the border because <laughs> it will be incompatible. I'd like to clarify. Uh, earlier, Fred said he knew nothing about Asian authorities. Let's uh, return to your early 20s. You spent that month in Thailand. Uh, anyways, A different kind of authority. Huh? <laughs> So, uh, what, what's your what's your kind of hope um, for the future, or what's what scares you about this at night? Like, what are you are you more optimistic or pessimistic about this stuff? Or um, I, I assume you have to be optimistic. I mean, you're the <laughs> chairperson of the group. If you're pessimistic. I'd be concerned. I'm optimistic. I you know, are they ready for the prime time road? No, no, uh, you know. Could I tell you what the time frame is? No. Um, but I'm optimistic that those um, players out there that are developing that are well aware that there are standards out there. And I think that moves the whole industry into a safer perspective. Um, so I'm very optimistic of that. I'm optimistic. Um, I intend, I'm on the last stages of consensus on adding the autonomous trucking into UL 4600. I'll probably have that published if all goes well. It's out for its last little step right now. Um, no later than April. So, it, you know, I'm optimistic that there's um, potential in that area of trucking that could deal with trucking shortages, supply chain, all of that, if we looked at autonomous trucking. Again, there are still some hurdles that need to um, happen. We know that there is, you know, the communication 
there are dead spots all over the place. I, I still go and baffled when my phone and I'm having directions and I'm in the middle of nowhere and I have no more GPS, right? right. I mean, that's all going to have to infrastructurally, a lot of things have to happen before this can be a reality too. But again, I'm very optimistic on, um, you know, the technology and the applications. It's just what makes sense and what comes first. But, you know, I feel like as that technology is changing and what's happening, we have um, a strong safety standard that they can't look to to guide for guidance. That's great. I mean, that makes me feel optimistic that there's people like you and Fred working and putting this stuff out there. Um, but I'd also like to point out to listeners, I think you hit on something briefly that for anyone who gets things, oh, this stuff is all ready. It's all here today. Uh, Google Maps a couple of weeks ago, mine was set to walk directions while I was driving. And that should have known that I was not walking at 60 miles per hour. Okay. So if we're at like something very, that simple, um, there's no way where, you know, you're going to have some cars drive itself, no matter what that South African man claims. So uh, I don't know. Do we have anything else or are we? You know, I, I was just going to say, you know, I think our first question for autonomous vehicle developers you know that who's claiming to have a product they can put on the road is have you you know have you followed ul4600 do you have your safety case do you have something ready to show the public that shows you've mitigated all the potential risks at least and thought them all through at least the ones that are known and have you prepared for unknown risk you know that it's a it's it's it really answers not only questions that every manufacturers should have before they're putting things on the road, but it would answer a lot of the questions that consumers have, um, depending on how transparent uh, manufacturers are with, you know, their performance indicators and other things that, that make up their safety case. So um, that could, you know, UL4600 provides kind of a path for consumer acceptance in many ways, mm -hmm. uh, as well as, you know, the type of rigorous process we want to see manufacturers go through before they put these things on the road. Deb, you've spent a lot of time, money, and effort putting UL 4600 together. Um, I'll ask for an opinion. Do you think it's possible for any independent vehicle manufacturer to come to an equivalent safety standard um, instead of using UL 4600? Or is it kind of an absolute minimum criterion for vehicles to assert their safety? Um, you know, I, I, this is my personal opinion. My personal opinion is that um, we had a bunch of a diverse group of experts that came to the table and really thought long and hard what baseline minimum should be there for this type of uh, product, right? We, we use the best minds. We use diverse stakeholders. And I personally believe that if you wanted to be on the road that you would be looking at following this standard to make your product safe. I agree. But so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for putting UL4600 together and thank you for letting me be a part of that. Oh, thank you. Like I said, 
Great voice at the table, Fred. We need that consumer perspective. Well, thanks for being our guest today. Um, yeah, we look forward to 20 years from now of uh, implementing UL4600 as I <laughs> flag a cab and it decides to run over my foot and thinks it was a pothole. I wanted, oh, no, I wanted you're to be in your hover vehicle at that point. Right, going to Canada, apparently. <laughs> I want to see that UL sticker on the car. <laughs> I was thinking, about, I think in the door jam, I think there's a UL sticker on my car right now. I think there might be. But I don't know what that's referring to. Um, you know, well, <laughs> it's not 4,600, obviously. Not 4,600. No, no, there are many components that can be third-party certified within your vehicle. However, it would not be... How do you put... How do you put a mark on software anyway? I mean, that's kind of... Well, you can, just no one's going to see it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Or it's going to be a very long boot-up screen. So... All right. Well, again, uh, thanks for being our guest. Thanks, listeners, for checking us out. And, uh, you know, I guess if you want to read UL4600 and join the Elite Three, um, you, you could. Could you get it? Could- Absolutely. Oh, okay. and, um, our standards are available for free to read. You can't download it for free, but you go to shopul dot com shopulstandards.com and you can um hit ul4600 new register and you can read it for free that sounds great if any of our listeners would like to ask a question should they come through us or would you like to have them contact you directly um either way is fine okay can we have your home address home phone number (laughs) or an email Uh, yeah, Deborah, D E B O R A H dot Prince, P R I N C E at UL dot org. You're going to want me to edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't give the phone number, right? I can, I can hit spam filter on that other stuff. <laughs> Great. Thank well, you. Till next week, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.